You're listening to Purpose Inspired, a podcast series by myself, Wayne Visser. This season is based on a book called The Age of Responsibility, CSR 2.0 and the New DNA of Business. Our Global Footprint Before we get into all that, let's start by putting some facts on the table that back up my claim that many of our global challenges are getting worse, not better, beginning with environmental impacts. According to the Global Footprint Network, humanity's ecological footprint, driven by the spread of capitalism and Western lifestyles globally, has more than tripled since 1961. Since the late 1980s, we have been in overshoot, meaning that the world's ecological footprint has exceeded the Earth's biocapacity. An ecological footprint analysis shows that while global biocapacity, the area available to produce our resources and capture our emissions, is 2.1 global hectares per person, the per-person footprint is already 2.7 global hectares. The USA and China have the largest national footprints, each in total about 21% of global biocapacity. But US citizens each require an average of 9.4 global hectares, or nearly 4.5 planet Earths, if the global population had US consumption patterns, while Chinese citizens use on average 2.1 global hectares per person, or one planet Earth. Biocapacity is also unevenly distributed, with eight nations, the United States, Brazil, Russia, China, India, Canada, Argentina and Australia, containing more than half the world total. Population and consumption patterns make three of these countries ecological debtors, with footprints greater than their national biocapacity. The United States, with a footprint 1.8 times national biocapacity, China 2.3 times, and India 2.2 times. A second environmental indicator is the Living Planet Index, compiled by the Zoological Society of London, which shows a nearly 30% decline since 1970 in nearly 5,000 measured populations of 1,686 species around the world. These dramatic losses in our natural wealth are being driven by deforestation and land conversion in the tropics, where species have declined by 50%, as well as the impact of dams, diversions and climate change on freshwater species, where there have been a 35% decline. Pollution, overfishing and destructive fishing in marine and coastal environments are also taking a considerable toll. Another indicator of the state of the planet is the United Nations Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, issued in 2005, which reaches similar conclusions. 60% of world ecosystem services have been degraded. Of 24 evaluated ecosystems, 15 are being damaged. Water withdrawals have doubled over the past 40 years, and over a quarter of all fish stocks are over-harvested. Since 1980, about 35% of mangroves have been lost, around 20% of corals have been lost in just 20 years, and 20% more have been degraded, and species extinction rates are now 100 to 1,000 times above the background natural rate. So by all accounts, capitalism is failing spectacularly 
to control the environmental impacts of the economic activities that it has been so successful at stimulating. What many people fail to appreciate is how uneconomic this environmental destruction really is. For example, a 2010 study conducted for the United Nations by Truecost found the estimated combined damage of the world's 3,000 biggest companies was worth $2.2 trillion dollars in 2008, a figure bigger than the national economies of all but seven countries in the world that year, and equal to one-third of the average profits of those companies. In 2010, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, or TEEB, study also found that the degradation of the Earth's ecosystems and biodiversity due to deforestation alone costs us natural capital worth somewhere between $1.9 and $4.5 trillion every year. Our global weather. Our environmental impacts and associated economic costs are no more dramatically evident than on the issue of climate change. The fourth assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, show that greenhouse gas concentrations today far exceed recent historical levels, with carbon dioxide, which is the most important greenhouse gas, growing from 280 parts per million in pre-industrial times to 379 parts per million in 2005. This exceeds the natural range over the last 650,000 years. Moreover, the rate of increase in carbon dioxide concentration has been faster in the last decade than at any point since measurement began. The spike in carbon emissions is mainly due to fossil fuel use, although changes in land use are also a big factor. Other greenhouse gas concentrations like methane have also been increasing. Despite occasional threats by climate skeptics, there is overwhelming scientific consensus that the climate system is definitely warming and that human activity is the primary cause. 11 of the 12 years to 2006 were among the warmest since records began. Trends over 1900 to 2005 indicate significantly increased precipitation in areas such as northern Europe and drying in areas like the Mediterranean. There have been longer and more intense droughts since the 1970s, and there have been widespread changes in extreme temperatures over the last 50 years. It is highly likely, more than 90% probable, that these changes in the climate system are human-caused and are a result of the increase in greenhouse gas concentrations. The most recent 100-year linear trend shows a 0.74 degrees Celsius increase in temperature in the century to 2005, which is larger than the 100-year trend of 0.6 degrees Celsius reported in 2001. Overall, the sea level is estimated to have risen by 0.17 meters during the 20th century. A warming of 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade over the next 20 years is predicted and there is a greater than 90% chance that climate change during the 21st century will exceed the previous century. The current best estimate for the average temperature rise is 1.8 degrees Celsius to 4.0 degrees Celsius by 2100 with a possible range of 1.1 degrees Celsius to 6.4 degrees Celsius. 
Specific predictions are also possible. For example, snow cover is expected to decrease, and permafrost regions, which store vast amounts of methane, will likely see increases in thaw depth. Temperature extremes, heat waves, and heavy precipitation events will continue to become more frequent, and tropical cyclones are also likely to become more intense. The higher latitudes will probably see more precipitation and most subtropical regions less. Models show that the ocean conveyor belt will slow during the century, though it is unlikely to undergo a large abrupt transition. In addition, there is a greater than 50% chance that human activities will have increased the risk of heat waves. The 2006 Stern Review on the Economics of Climate Change concludes that climate change is the greatest market failure the world has ever seen and estimates that the cost of action to reduce greenhouse gases and avoid the worst impacts of climate change can be limited to about 1% of global gross domestic product per year if action is immediate and decisive. By contrast, failure to act swiftly will damage economic growth. Specifically, inaction will result in a persistent annual loss of 5% of global gross domestic product. If a wide range of impacts and risks is considered, this could be as high as 20% of GDP or more. It is important to emphasize that climate change is not just an environmental issue. A 2009 report by the United Nations Development Programme estimates significant impacts of global warming on the world's 2.6 billion people surviving on less than $2 a day, including up to 600 million more people facing malnutrition due to the breakdown of agricultural systems resulting from increased exposure to drought, rising temperatures and more erratic rainfall. The report estimates potential productivity losses of 26% by 2060 in semi-arid areas of sub-Saharan Africa, home to some of the highest concentrations of poverty in the world. An additional 1.8 billion people are expected to experience water stress by 2080, with large areas of South Asia and northern China facing a grave ecological crisis as a result of glacial retreat and changing rainfall patterns. In addition, up to 332 million people in coastal and low-lying areas may be displaced by flooding and tropical storm activity, including more than 70 million Bangladeshis, 22 million Vietnamese and 6 million Egyptians. Finally, related health effects suggest that as many as 400 million people are likely to face the risk of malaria as a result of climate change. National Geographic magazine have also identified dengue fever as a major risk. Our global village. The social impacts of our globalization activities are far more ambiguous. On the one hand, critics like Naomi Klein, author of No Logo and the Shock Doctrine, argue that so-called Gucci capitalism results in labor exploitation and a race to the bottom. In other words, capital flows to wherever the social or environmental standards are lowest. Not only this, but capitalism is designed to create the instability that we have seen in the markets, and those that suffer the most from this volatility are always the most vulnerable, namely the poor of the world. On the other hand, there has been undoubted progress in reducing global poverty. 
In 2010, in the UN's Millennium Development Goals report, it shows that the number of people in developing regions living on less than $1.25 a day reduced from 1.8 billion in 1990 to 1.4 billion in 2005, while the overall poverty rate dropped from 46% to 27%. Looking at specific countries, poverty rates in China are expected to fall to around 5% by 2015. India, too, has contributed a large reduction in global poverty. Measured at the $1.25 a day poverty line, poverty rates there are expected to fall from 51% in 1990 to 24% in 2015, and the number of people living in extreme poverty will likely decrease by 188 million. It is in no small part due to these achievements by China and India that the developing world as a whole remains on track to achieve the Millennium Development Goals poverty reduction target by 2015. The overall poverty rate is expected to fall to 15% by 2015, which translates into around 920 million people living under the international poverty line, half the number in 1990. Other areas of progress have been major advances in getting children into school in many of the poorest countries, especially in sub-Saharan Africa. There have also been remarkable improvements in key interventions. For example, for malaria and HIV control and measles immunisation, the number of child deaths has been cut from 12.5 million in 1990 to 8.8 million in 2008. Between 2003 and 2008, the number of people receiving antiretroviral therapy increased tenfold, from 400,000 to 4 million, corresponding to 42% of the 8.8 million people who needed treatment for HIV infection. Despite this remarkable progress, however, huge challenges remain. In 2009, 42 million people had been displaced by conflict or persecution, 80% of them in developing countries. The number of people who are undernourished has continued to grow, while slow progress in reducing the prevalence of hunger has stalled or even reversed itself in the first decade of the century. Furthermore, about one in four children under the age of five are still underweight, mainly due to inadequate access to food, water, sanitation and health services, as well as poor care and feeding practices. The situation with sanitation provides a window into the challenges that remain. Only about half of the world's developing population has adequate sanitation facilities. Disparities between rural and urban areas are daunting, with only 40% of rural populations covered. The gaps between rich and poor are equally stark. While 77% of the population in the richest 20% of households have acquired improved sanitation facilities, only 16% of those in the poorest households have had similar improvements. Disparities in access to care during pregnancy are also striking, with women in the richest households 1.7 times more likely than the poorest women to visit a skilled health worker at least once before birth. Similarly, in southern Asia, 60% of children in the poorest areas are underweight, compared to 25% of children in the richest households. 
Underscoring the inequality that we still face in the world, Gallup's 2010 Global Snapshot of Wellbeing revealed that the percentage of people who are thriving ranges from a high of 82% in Denmark to a low of 1% in Togo. Africa has the lowest well-being, with no country in the region showing a thriving indicator higher than 25%. In fact, of the 41 countries where thriving is 10% or lower, more than half are in Africa. Elsewhere in the world, however, disparities also exist. Thriving in the Americas is highest in Costa Rica at 63% and Canada at 62% and lowest in Cuba at 24% and Haiti at 4%. In Europe, self-reported well-being is lowest in Bulgaria at 6% and highest in Denmark at 82% and Finland at 75%. Similar disparities are evident in Asia. Thriving is 60% or higher in New Zealand, where it's 63%, Israel at 62%, and Australia at 62%, and 10% or lower in 11 nations, with Cambodia at the bottom with 3%.